Hi, I'm Valerie Schmidt, and I have the privilege of reading the scripture this morning. It can be found in the Pew Bibles on page 835, and the scripture is John 3:16 through 21. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. This is God's word. Thank you, Valerie. Well, if you are a child ages four years old through kindergarten, you can be dismissed to Children's Church now. Kira's in the back. And as they're going back, we've mentioned over the last two months that there are more kids here in, in the service because we've suspended elementary and uh, youth Sunday school over the summer, which is a really great thing for both our volunteers and our students, I think. The volunteers get some rest And the students get to spend more time here worshiping with their families, which I think is super, super important. We've been encouraging the kids in here and the adults, too, that if they would care to draw a picture, if that helps them understand, um, to do that. And then we've been putting them up on the walls. You may have seen them. It looks awesome out there. So this morning, if you aren't sure um, what to draw, you'll see there's paper by the Bibles there in the back of the pews. If you aren't sure what to draw, Draw a picture of the world, and then write on there, For God so loved me. But first, before we get too far, let's pray. Father, thank you for being here among us this morning. And thank you, um, as Valerie just read, that you so loved the world. We pray that 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 love would be made real to us this morning, um, both through your word, and through the experience of just being a part of your church. We're thankful for the gospel of Jesus, and we pray that that would be made clear this morning. Pray this in his name. Amen. Chances are, the name Roland Stewart means nothing to you. But as I describe him, he may sound more familiar. So believe it or not, Roland Stewart was actually one of the most iconic figures of the 1980s. First coming into the spotlight as Rainbow Man, Stewart would wear a huge rainbow afro wig at a ridiculous number of televised sporting events. As the story goes, after attending the 1979 Super Bowl in Miami, Florida, Rainbow Man went back to his hotel room, turned on the TV, heard a Christian message, which prompted him to start using his platform for God's glory instead of his own fame. So he added to his wardrobe a shirt that read, Jesus saves, and a sign that simply read, John 3, 16. 
And he would probably display this sign at whatever sporting event that he was at. Uh, and he ended up making, it, making his mark in the end zone at a ton of football games, but he didn't stop there. He also showed up at the NBA Finals, the Kentucky Derby, the Olympics, and he even managed a surprise appearance at the royal wedding of Prince Charles and Princess Diana. Well, this sparked a movement of making John 3.16 the most famous verse in pop culture. From other sporting events, like football player Tim Tebow wearing it on his eye black for the 2009 uh, college football championship, which prompted 94 million internet searches of the verse, to John 3.16 being printed at the bottom of Forever 21 shopping bags, this verse has taken our world by storm. Even if you've ever been out west and gone to In-N-Out Burger, you may have noticed the verse printed on the bottom of their cups. But all of this to say, it is likely that whether this is the first time you've ever stepped foot in a church, or if you've been coming to church all of your life, you are probably familiar with John 3.16. Maybe you have it memorized, or maybe you don't. But regardless of your spiritual history, you are likely well aware that Christians are really, really into John 3.16. But what is it about this verse that has made it so famous? What is it about this verse that has led some to call it the golden text of the Bible? Well, if you give me 30 minutes of your attention, I think that you will see why. But one thing that we need to come face to face with right off the bat is that it is a true blessing from God that John 3.16 has become the most popular verse in the Bible. But, ironically, one of the few negative things about our familiarity with this verse is that I don't think that we are as surprised as we should be by how glorious the passage is. So if it's at all possible, let's come to this text this morning with fresh eyes, fresh ears, and fresh hearts so that we can see all of the beauty that this passage holds for us. We think we've got these verses figured out, but God has so much more for us in this text if we would only allow ourselves to be surprised. My goal for us this morning is to see that this passage shows us the surprising good news that needs to break into our reality, specifically that God loves people more than we think, and he went to the ultimate lengths to prove it. In order to do that this morning, we're going to look at three things that should surprise us about this verse. So first, we'll look at a surprising love, then we'll look at a surprising gift, and then a surprising way to receive it. So surprising love, surprising gift, and then a surprising way to receive it. We'll start with a surprising love. If you don't already have your Bibles open, uh, turn with me to John 3.16. Like Valerie said, it's on page 835 in the Pew Bible. We'll be looking at the verses quite a bit. So I'm going to read just the first few words of John 3.16. For God so loved the world. The fact that God loves the world doesn't surprise us. We hear this kind of thing all the time. In fact, for so many of us, we struggle to know what could possibly be surprising about that phrase. But if we sit with it, we'll see that it turns our typical view of God's love on its head, and certainly the view that the Jewish readers at the time that John was writing this would have had about the love of God. So let me read it again this way. For God so loved the world. 
This passage intentionally goes against the grain of the way that we naturally think of God apart from the scriptures. That is, there is a lie that we believe that tells us that God is a condemning God that only loves us because of the work of Jesus. That the Father can only stand us because of his Son. That somehow God had to convince, I'm sorry, somehow Jesus had to convince the Father to love us. And in reality, it is true that as sinners, we cannot be in the presence of a holy God. But we should not go so far as to say that that means that we are no longer loved by the Father because of our sin. Far from it. His love for us, seeing us in our sin, is the very thing that compelled him to send his Son. Christian, this passage corrects our wayward hearts at this point by telling us not that the Father loves us because Jesus died for us, but rather that Jesus died for us because the Father loves us. Friends, Jesus didn't have to strong-arm the Father into loving us, into loving you. He didn't back God into a corner with theological gymnastics so that the Father now has to love us. I don't want you to miss this. God actually wants to love you. It is not our loveliness that makes God love us, but our unloveliness. It's not because of our sufficiency that Christ stepped down from heaven, but our need. It's not because of anything that we bring to the table, but simply because God is love. I think we see glimpses of this sort of thing even in our own lives. When I was very young, my family and I were visiting some cousins in Florida And one day, we were sitting by the pool, and I, confident youngster that I was, decided to go for a swim, even though I had no idea how to swim. I jumped in and quickly began to panic when I realized that the water was going over my head, and I couldn't keep myself afloat. I'm sure my arms were flailing, and there was a ton of splashing. But then my dad jumped into the water, scooped me up, and lifted me to safety and signed me up for swim lessons shortly thereafter. But in that moment, it wasn't my sufficiency that allowed my father to show his love to me, but my need. How much more is this true of our Heavenly Father? Let me read that same portion of verse 16 again, just with a different emphasis. For God so loved the world... We could be confused about what the world here means. Is this the earth itself? Is this God's chosen people all around the globe? Is it something else? In this passage and in John's gospel generally, the Greek word for the world is primarily in reference to creation, most specifically mankind, in rebellion against God. Take, for example, John 15, 18 through 19, which reads, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. This particular passage tells of the world's hatred for both Jesus and his followers. And yet these are the very people that the heart of God was drawn out toward in love in John 3. How counterintuitive to our limited minds. This would have been especially subversive 
for the Jewish people when John was writing his gospel. They had been told for centuries and centuries about God's love for them. The Old Testament is full of evidence of God's love for Israel. But somewhere along the line, there developed a false idea of God's love that limited it to extend only toward Israel. Scripture again corrects that thought here and says, in a sense, for God so loved not just Jews, but Samaritans. God so loved not just Israelites, but Gentiles. God so loved all people. God so loved you. Yes, you. And God also loves people who look different than you, talk different than you, vote different than you, and prefer different music than you. God loves Africans, Asians, Hispanics, Europeans, and even Americans. He loves the gay pride activist and the protester. He loves unborn babies and abortion doctors. He loves Republicans, Democrats, and people who really don't care at all. He loves people that abuse their money and people who don't have money to abuse. He loves the weak, the wounded, and the wayward. We say that all the time, but do you have room in your theology for that? Does it make you uncomfortable to think that God loves people who don't share your outlook on parenting, on sexuality, on abortion, on Christianity? Do you believe that this is true? That's what this passage tells us. God loves all people without distinction. Do we? Do you? Now, it would be helpful here for me to make a caveat. I do believe that the Bible teaches a particular special kind of love that God has for his people and has had for his people throughout history. But this passage isn't talking about that special love. This passage is talking about a love of compassion, a love of pity. This verse is not teaching that because God loves every person, every person is automatically saved. We'll get into more of the details of how we're saved later in the sermon. But for now, I bring this up not as a distraction, but to help us see that while this special kind of love isn't automatically applied to everyone, anyone can get in on this special kind of love. It isn't just for a particular group of people, but for all kinds of people. So we see that this verse should already surprise us in the love that the Father has for the whole world. But the next surprise comes to us in the form of the gift that he gave the world because of that love. This is verses 16 and 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. When someone doesn't like you and wants nothing to do with you, what's your response? What about when a group of people feel this way toward you? If you're anything like me, it isn't a great response. But what's God's response? When the people that he had made hated him and wanted nothing to do with him, what does the passage say? He sent the fiery hammer of justice. He got angry. He realized he made a mistake in creating people. No. He gave. 
This is our second surprise. We should be taken aback that God's gut reaction to hate and rebellion from the very people that he created is not judgment, but radical generosity. Throughout the scriptures, we see God giving all kinds of gifts. Through the book of Exodus, which we just finished teaching through, we saw God give his people food, deliverance, angels going before them in battle, and we even spent a couple of months teaching through the law that he had so graciously given. But this gift is something different. God gave his only son. This wasn't God giving his leftovers. This wasn't him giving a gift to get recognition. This was radical generosity. He gave the best resource that he had available, his only son. But in giving us Jesus, God didn't simply give us his son. He gave us himself If we go back to John 1, so in your Bible it might just be a page before, if we go back to John 1, this is what we read starting in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The Word, Jesus, the Word was God, the one through whom all things were made. The radical generosity of God is that in giving his Son, he was giving himself. One of my favorite songs that we sing here at church is called, Yet Not I, But Through Christ in Me. And it begins this way. What gift of grace is Jesus my Redeemer? There is no more for heaven now to give. God, the limitless, all-powerful creator God, used the single greatest resource at his disposal to put his love on display for us, himself. There is no more for heaven now to give. Here we see that God gives of his greatest treasure for people who could never pay him back. Is this the way that we think about generosity and giving? How do we use our gifts, our money, our schedule, our home? God is not stingy with us. Are we stingy with each other? We have no idea the testimony that our radical generosity could have on a watching world. These are opportunities for us to think critically about our lives. But what does this passage teach us about the work of Jesus? What do we learn about the gift himself? Again, we might think God's impulse is judgment and condemnation. And this is what many of the Jews in the first century expected as well. They expected the Messiah to come and bring judgment on the world. And yet, this passage shows both the Jews of the first century and us today that God's impulse is not judgment or condemnation, but salvation. Christ brings forgiveness, not the hammer of justice. So we should be surprised by God's gift because it's so extravagant. He gave us his only son. We should also be surprised by God's gift because it's so gracious. 
He came to save us while we were still sinners, not to bring judgment. Pastor Dane Ortland says it this way in his book, Gentle and Lowly. It's a bit of a longer quote, so listen closely. He says, God didn't meet us halfway. He refused to hold back, cautious, assessing our worth. That is not his heart. He and his son took the initiative when we, despite our smiles and civility, were running from God as fast as we could, building our own kingdoms and loving our own glory, lapping up the fraudulent pleasures of the world. It was then that the Prince of Heaven bade his adoring angels farewell. It was then that he put himself into the murderous hands of those very rebels in a divine strategy to rinse muddy sinners clean and hug them into his own heart despite their squirmy attempt to get free and scrub themselves clean on their own. Christ went down into death while we applauded. We couldn't have cared less. We were weak sinners, enemies. Do you see the surprising beauty of the gift of God? God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son to a world that couldn't have cared less. He gave him not to condemn the world, but to save it. God could not have given the world a better gift than Christ. Well, all of this is great, but what do we do with it? God loved the world, so he sent his son to the world. Does that mean that all people are saved? How do we think about this? I'm going to read verse 16 again, and as I read, I want you to listen for two groups of people, both starting with the letter W. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Did you catch the two groups of people? The world and the whoever the world, and the whoever. They represent two very different types of people. If you remember, near the beginning of the sermon, we said that the world is those in rebellion against God. And this is who all of us are born as. We are all born into rebellion against God. It doesn't matter who your parents were. It doesn't matter what you have done or not done. It doesn't matter where you're from or how many times you've been to church. This is who we are apart from Christ, all of us. Verses 19 and 20 give us a more robust understanding of the world. They read, The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come into the light, lest his works should be exposed. The world, God's creation in rebellion against him, denies the light. The light has come into the world, but the world is obsessed with darkness. But why? Because if they stepped into the light, their works will be exposed. I wonder if you have ever felt this way, afraid to step into the light because you didn't want your works to be exposed. I've sure experienced this. But the other group of people is the whoever. Whoever believes in the name of the only Son of God. Verse 21 gives us a picture of what marks these people. 
It says, but whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. While the world hides from the light, the whoever runs to the light. Why? So that it can be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Those who do not love the light are like those experiencing a physical ailment but refuse to see a doctor for fear of learning something uncomfortable about their health. But those that love the light are like those who, when experiencing a physical ailment, will seek out a doctor because they know that it's only through the doctor that they can be made well. The light is shining and the light will expose the truth for both the world and for the whoever. When the light of Jesus shines on your life, what does it expose? Do you desire to come to him so that he can heal you, or do you desire to shy away into the shadows? So let's return to the question. God loves all people, so are all people saved? We mentioned this earlier, but these verses tell us, no, not all people are saved. But if not all people are saved, does that make God the one responsible for all of those who are not saved? Is his love for the world not enough? Again, these verses tell us, no. Salvation is not something that depends on whether or not God loves us. This passage is clear that God loves all people. But this passage also tells us that the difference that leads some to love the light and some to reject the light is their belief in the only Son of God. This is our third surprise. The surprising way that we receive the gift of God's love is simply belief. Belief in what? Belief in the Son of God. Belief that Jesus is who he says he is and has done what he says he has done. But belief doesn't just stop there. Even the demons have an accurate understanding of who Jesus is and what he's done. Belief, if we understand it rightly, is not just intellectual acknowledgement of truth, but delighting in that truth, embracing that truth. In true belief, we not only accept that Jesus is the Son of God and died for sinners like us, but that you begin to desire Jesus himself more and more. This is what it means to be in the whoever. And once you are in the whoever, there is no turning back. He will not let go of you. We don't need to fear that God's posture towards us will change. God's love is constant. We are the ones that change. Our lack of belief keeps us from him. Our darkness keeps us from the light. Think about it this way. If we were to walk outside at nighttime and we experience darkness, do we experience that darkness because the sun has stopped shining or the sun has turned off? No, of course not. We experience darkness because of the posture of the earth in relationship to the sun. Similarly, when we have not experienced salvation, this is not because God's love has turned off, but rather because our desire is to pursue the shadows rather than his marvelous light. Well, this passage ought to be a great comfort to us. We should not trouble ourselves wondering if God actually loves us. This passage tells us so. 
and Jesus has shown us so. We can take great comfort in the fact that God's love is constant and that we do not need to convince him to love us. We should also take comfort in the fact that the only bar to get in on the salvation that God brings is belief. The only requirement is that when you hear of the Father's heart overflowing in love and sending the best gift that he had to the world, you say, that gift is for me. I believe that Jesus died so that my sins would be paid for, that my price would be paid, and that I could walk in newness of life. That's all that's required. This is the surprising way to receive the gift. But it's also the only way to receive the gift. There is no other way to eternal life than to believe in the only Son of God. What we have here is an invitation to move from the world to the whoever, from the darkness to the light. And so I'll ask you, have you moved from the world to the whoever? Do you love the light? And if you would say, you know what, I actually haven't moved from the world to the whoever, you must know Jesus has come to bring salvation, not judgment or condemnation. But one day he will. One day he will judge the living and the dead. But today is not that day. Let me say to you now, along with the Apostle Paul, today is the day of salvation. The eternal life that God gives in his one and only Son can be yours today. God loves you more than you think. And he went to the ultimate lengths to show it. And that's surprising good news. Well, this morning, not only do we get to learn about God's abundant blessings, but we get to experience it in coming to the Lord's table together. What seems on the outside to be a simple meal is actually an image of something far, far greater. In this meal, we see the outworking of John 3.16 on display in full When the Father sent His Son into the world, He didn't send Him simply to be a moral teacher or simply to show us the way to live, although those things are true. Primarily, He sent His Son into the world to be the sacrifice for sin, to bear the wrath of God. And in this meal, we get a taste of His body, which was broken for sinners just like you and me. And we get to drink of His blood, which was poured out for the forgiveness of sins. And if that isn't surprising to you, it should be. And I pray that you would begin to have the light shine into your darkness and surprise you with his love, his gift, and the way that that gift can be yours. Before we go to the table this morning, let me just give some brief instruction. Uh, There will be people up front on either side here uh, with the bread and the juice for you to receive. You'll come up the front aisle, then go around on the the outer aisles to get back to your seat. When you're finished with the cup, please keep it with you at your seat. There'll be people at the door to collect it on your way out. If you aren't able to come forward but would still like to take communion with us, flag one of us down and we'll make sure that you're able to take communion where you're at. And finally, I'll say this. Different churches do communion differently, so if you're not a member of our church, I want you to know you are welcome to partake of this meal with us. The only thing that I will say is that we ask that you only come up and receive the bread and the juice if you would say, For God so loved me that he gave his only Son, that because I believe in him, I will not perish but have eternal life. 
If you're not a Christian, communion could be your chance to come into the light. This could be your very first act of faith, and if so, we welcome you to the table. But if you're not ready for that just yet, we are so glad you're here, and we would love to talk to you more about Jesus and what it would mean to receive his grace. We would just ask that you stay seated. So I'm going to pray, and the music team is going to come up and sing a song over us as we receive the bread and the juice. And once you sit back down, stay in your seat, and please wait to take communion until we can all partake together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are thankful that you love the world. And that because of your love, you have sent your Son into the world to save the world. And so we pray that that would be our experience. We pray that as the light shines into us, we wouldn't shy away from the light into the shadows, but that we would come boldly into the light because we know that it's through you that all of our good works are done. I pray that that would be the reality for us and that we also wouldn't shy away from telling people the good news of Jesus. To tell them about how the light has shined into our darkness and how the darkness will not overcome it. We're thankful for your word. We're thankful for your church. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.